I have the pleasure to introduce my mother this morning. Uh, those of you who know me better know that I was a missionary kid and grew up in Zaire, Africa. And my mother recently put together a history of our time over there. A little scary, because there's things I've read in that book that I, I didn't necessarily need to remember. <laughs> However, Mary Ellen loves each place and the people where the Lord has led her. Whether it was the business world, pastoral ministry, being a French teacher, or the international missionary of 20 years, God has taught her that the plans and purpose are treasures beyond value, blessings to anticipate and surprises to enjoy. Not retired, but refired, she spends her time facilitating Bible studies, playing violin, volunteering in state prisons, and serving on mission trips. And here she is. Thank you so much, Bill and church. Uh, I'm not the message today. I'm just going to be sharing some of the praises of the Lord. Um, as we said, his praises will always be on my lips, and that's part of what I'm here for. I do have a book in my hands that Bill mentioned. Hold it up here to show you. And the title of it is A Bunk Bed, A Banana Tree, and a Dog. Subtitle, Personal Letters and Recollections Unfold Decades of a Family's Growing Faith in God While Missionaries in a Developing Country. I think Bill said to you that that country was Zaire. It is in the central part of Africa, the third largest country there, and it is now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. It used to be the Belgian Congo until 1960 when they used the name Zaire after one of the rivers. The book is bringing to my family many new experiences. One of them is having my son introduce me. <laughs> and um, I must say that uh, when we first took him to Zaire, he was a bit shorter. <laughs> he was four years old, his sister was six, and his younger brother was nine months old. It is one of the reasons I'm standing before you. We call it a miracle, a dream, a surprise, a journal, a 10-year project, a treasure of memories chronicling two decades of our family's life and ministry in Zaire. But while it is those things to us, it is primarily, primarily, a testimony of people finding God faithful. I want to underline that, finding God faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 is a verse that was known to us long before the Lord called us into Zaire. Faithful is he who calls you. He will do it. The letters written down uh, home during our years were saved by my mother-in-law. And when I discovered them in about 2005, I knew I needed to preserve the delicate airgrams that were written from 1979 to 1996. Then seeing that they were a treasury, a treasure, a forgotten history of our lives, I realized that our children should have this record. It became an act of obedience of mine to Deuteronomy 4.9, a verse that I use at the very beginning of the book, which is the first letter 
of winter 2016 when I wrote to Dear Children. And our children did not know anything about this until April 4th, 2021, when we revealed it to them on Easter Sunday. That was part of the, the um, project, part of the process that we wove into this time of putting the letters into a computer. And the verse, Deuteronomy 4.9, reads, Be very careful never to forget what you've seen the Lord do for you. Do not let these things escape from your mind as long as you live. And be sure to pass them to your children and grandchildren. So that struck me very hard as I was looking at these letters, having decided that we needed to do something with them for our children and grandchildren, because we had forgotten many of those lessons. But they were revealed to us again, anew, as we were going through the letters Mom had saved. <clears throat> Someone has said that reading this is like being a fly on the wall in a missionary's home. Now, maybe that's something you never thought of doing, maybe in your neighbor's home. <laughs> but someone has said that that was true of this book. So being that, you may learn in reading it what it's like to be in a conversation when the thoughts switch back and forth between two or three languages that aren't your first language. You may want to see what happens when you wake up one day to learn that the government made new currency. Yours of yesterday is not good. And the government didn't make enough to go around. Learn how to help a pilot friend recover his plane that crashed in a crocodile-friendly river. What is it like to have malaria? How to get off a log bridge that your truck is stuck on? How to prepare your young children to live without water and electricity every day? And no, Cheerios. How to prepare to leave your home and evacuate it in 24 hours if necessary? What's it like to be accused of being a spy for a North African dictator? and be kept in house arrest. What do you do when you sit in church on a Sunday for worship service and find it's a baptism, music of visiting choirs, three or six of them, a baby dedication, the message, the interpretation of the message, and a wedding? <laughs> Teach literacy to women in Swahili who are fluent in that and in another language that has 17 past tenses, and it's tonal. Teach editing literature, as my husband did. He was in literature ministry for a while. Teach that edit editing skill to people who believe that if it's printed, it must be right. You don't correct it. We loved it all. And coming to the United States was the hardest part of it. But we also loved the people in our supporting churches and sharing our experiences with them. On one such visit, one lady made a great impression on me when she said, Oh, Mary Ellen, when I see you and Bill taking your children to Africa, uh, never knowing if you have, are going to have water or electricity every day, you're being far from your family, I just know when you get to heaven, you're going to have a great reward. I found myself with an immediate answer. What do you think it was? One, yes, that's why I'm living like this. So it's a laugh. <laughs> or two, 
Thank you for your kind thoughts. One or two. It was neither. Instead, I was led to say, oh, my friend, Bill and I are just obeying what the Lord told us to do. That isn't any different than what he wants from you. Living from the Savior who loved you and died for you, being faithful in your home, your work, your church, your community, loving God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. That's your responsibility as Christ's ambassadors, as it is ours. The Old Testament tells us God doesn't want sacrifices. He didn't want those cows and those lambs. What did he want? Obedience. I think I heard someone say that. These cards about, would have the book name are on the back. I'm not here to sell books, but I would, thought you might like to see one of these and pray for it as it gets into people's hands. And there is a big red word on the back of it which says, warning. Read to see the unusual, boring, or divine in God's call to ordinary people. That's what we are. All of us. Ordinary people saved by grace. And so I want to close and share with you a different way of saying that First, Corinthians, First Thessalonians 5.24 from a different uh, translation, which is faith, which is challenge and, and a, a challenge for you to know and live by. Faithful is he who is calling you to himself, to his salvation. Utterly trustworthy. He will also do it. He will fulfill his call by hallowing and keeping you. And another says, the one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. Good morning. As far as I know, we don't have a wedding, a baptism, six choirs, a baby dedication, and what else was it? Uh, all coming up today, but you do have, uh, you have to listen to me. And some of you, a few weeks ago, were watching the Olympics, and you no doubt saw some extremely skilled, uh, young, exuberant, talented people doing all kinds of things that were just amazing. And then some of you came back uh, to reality, and you had to go to some of your children's or grandchildren's sports events, and you thought, hmm, uh, it's not exactly the same. So that's what's happening today. Instead of Josh Staley, uh, who's fantastic, and we get to hear him every week, you get to hear me. Um, but as good as Josh is, and as uh, tremendous as his sermons are, uh, his sermons will probably not be analyzed and thought about and talked about and written down 2,000 years from now. But Jesus, who unquestionably was the greatest teacher of all time, his sermons and his teachings and his thoughts are still being considered and, and analyzed and thought about by us. So today we're going to look at one of the more famous of his parables, <clears throat> and it's in Luke 8, Luke 8, 4 through 15. Now, a parable is a story that Jesus told to illustrate a truth, usually about God, sometimes about us, sometimes about both. But the parables, as you will find out, as Jesus says in this parable today, were not necessarily easy to understand. In fact, he told them, I think, partly because he wanted people to think about what they were hearing and to consider it and reflect on it 
and not simply to be told what the, what the proposition was, but to try to figure it out for themselves. Now, when you think about this, uh, you realize that uh, parables are not necessarily uh, easy to understand. And this one today is one of those that's not necessarily easy to understand. So let's read Luke 8, 4 through 15. Luke 8, th 4 through 15. Luke 8, 4 through 15, which is the parable of the sower or the farmer and the four soils. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to see Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables so that, though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those of the noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you will help me as I teach it, help us as we listen to it, that your spirit will be working in us to teach us what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we look at the parable itself, let's look at what those curious words that Jesus speaks in the middle of the parable, where he talks about uh, why he teaches in parables in the first place. He says, uh, I speak in parables so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. What was Jesus saying here? Was he saying that he was trying to obscure the truth so that people wouldn't understand it? I don't think that's it at all. What he was saying was that his listeners were part of the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people according to their own teachings and theology and what they'd learned their whole lives. They were people, after all, God had called out of slavery in Egypt. He had given them the promised land. He had given them the law and the prophets. And they had uh, a special place in God's uh, uh, family as they thought about themselves the God's own chosen people. And so they thought they knew everything there was to know, frankly, about God. They were religious people. They were good people. They were people like many of us. They were people that did the right thing. And so they did, when they heard these parables, uh, they didn't necessarily understand what Jesus was trying to tell them, which was that God was different than their preconceived notions of who God was. That God was more than what they thought he was that he was different than what they thought, and in fact, he was a, uh, a completely uh, unique God 
and not a God that they had put in their own little box and they had all figured out. And this is especially true about religious people. And religious people then, as now, tend to think that they have God figured out, that they know what God wants to do, that they know what God is going to do, and they know who God likes and who God doesn't like. And you can see that even the disciples, Jesus' own uh, people followed him around, that he had picked, hand-picked, didn't understand this parable because they said, please explain it to us. So what didn't they understand? Well, I think it's when you look at the parable and think about it, there's something here that doesn't make much sense. Who doesn't make much sense in this parable? The farmer. The farmer makes no sense at all. Now, to contrast what this farmer does, I, went, I thought back to the garden that we had growing up. Uh, we, Don and I grew up on a, a sort of a poverty farm <laughs> down in Chautauqua, near Sherman. And uh, we had a great big garden. My father had the theory that if he was going to have a bunch of kids, at least they could help raise the food that they were going to eat. So we had a, a very large garden. And uh, the garden itself uh, was surrounded by a, a bunch of weeds outside the garden and a path that you took to get into the garden and a stone driveway right next to the garden. Uh, and that's and then the garden itself. Now, when we planted our garden every spring, we would very carefully plant the seeds in the garden. And we did it usually in rows. I was not allowed to do this because I could not go in a straight row. I, I still can't to this day. Uh, but uh, my father would you know, have a nice little uh, trench that we would put the seeds in, unless it was something that was planted in hills like corn, and then he would do the, the hoeing for that too. And those seeds were very carefully placed in their proper spots. We did not plant the seed in the driveway. We did not plant the seed on that path that we took into the, through the weeds to the garden. And we certainly didn't plant the seed out in those weeds that surrounded the garden, and the grass and the, the junk. We didn't have a manicured lawn by any, by any stretch of the imagination. We made sure we planted the seeds in that nice soil. That soil was tilled and fertilized and limed and checked every year and plowed and dissed. And, very, very well taken care of. So why does this farmer do what he does? Because the passage says, some of the seed went along the path where it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Why does he do this? Why does the farmer act so foolishly with his seed? He's prolific. He's generous. He's extravagant. You can use any word you want. He's just throwing his seed out there. He reminds me of the uh, person who won the lottery that starts uh, buying everybody in the, in the bar a drink or giving $100 tips to the waiter, waitresses and the diners. We've all read stories about that. Maybe the Buffalo Bills rookie who gets too much money and then starts to waste it. Um, this is what this farmer is like. So why is he doing this? Who is this farmer? When Jesus does the explanation, he doesn't really say who the farmer is. He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Well, who spreads God's word? Well, primarily, of course, it's God. It's his spirit that spreads his word. Secondarily, it's us now joining with God and spreading his word. So why does the seed go everywhere? 
Why does this seed go to all these places? Well, there's a hint in Luke 5, chapter 5, verses 29 through 31, about what Jesus did when he was here on earth and who Jesus hung around with. That passage says as follows. Then Levi, who was one of Jesus' disciples and was himself a tax collector, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, Jesus hung around with people that none of us would hang around with. Now, you may think of tax collectors as being you know, somebody that works in the assessor's office in the town of Pomfret or works for the IRS. But this term had a lot more meaning than that for those first century Palestinian Jews. The Romans, of course, controlled that part of the world and most of the known world at that time. And one thing the Romans were really good at, besides building roads and having good armies, was collecting taxes. And the whole reason they had conquered these lands was to gain tribute or tax to send back to Rome where the Roman emperors lived like, well, lived like kings. Um, they had a fantastic, luxurious lifestyles. And so how they collected taxes from their uh, colonies, such as Israel, was as follows. They would put it up for bid. So anybody who wanted to be the tax collector could make a bid. So suppose I said, look, for the town of Pomfret or the village of Feronia, I'll collect you know, $10 million. They'd say, fine, you've got the bid. Now, anything I collected over and above that, I got to keep. So naturally, I was be, would be accused of being corrupt and unpatriotic because here I am cooperating with this invading army and taking money from my former friends and neighbors and even relatives and then padding my own pockets and sending the rest back to Rome. Um, can you imagine what it would be like in our country right now if, say, the Chinese took over Fredonia? And of course, they have their Chinese uniforms and their you know, guns slung over their shoulders, and they'd be patrolling the streets. And suppose all of a sudden you realize that's one of your neighbors that's joined up with them. What would you think of that person? And now he's coming to your door and saying, hey, fork over some money. I don't know about you, but I think I would dislike this person intensely. Um, and so this is what Jesus, this is the people that Jesus are hanging around with. And any good Israeli patriot hated these, these people who had suddenly turned turncoat and become collaborators with the occupying army. And besides that, they were dishonest. I mean, they were not only were they were they traitors, but they're dishonest traitors to boot. They're Benedict Arnold. They're, they're somebody that you would never want to hang around with. And yet Jesus is going out drinking with them. Okay, that's what this passage says. What's up with this? And when the good people, the religious people, the patriots said to Jesus, what are you doing? He said, I didn't come for the righteous people. I came for the sinners. So Jesus himself hung around with people that we would have to look at and say, that's not very good soil, right? That seed's never going to grow with tax collectors. Um, but, you know, that's Jesus' uh, attitude toward this whole world, that he wanted people to come 
to faith. Uh, and that's repeated in, uh, by one of his disciples, Peter, in 2 Peter 3.9, where he said this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Paul echoes this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It was no doubt fitting today that we had somebody who's spent a good part of her life in missions talk to us about what it's like to do foreign missions because that's God's heart for this world is to bring people to himself. Um, so this, of course, was different than what Jesus' disciples and the great crowd of people who had gathered around Jesus were thinking about God. They thought that God loved them and God wanted them, but they weren't really too sure about all these other people. Now, a lot of Jesus' parables had the same theme, that God was trying to, to invite everybody to his kingdom and was interested in everybody, even people who were, no, who were not traditionally thought to be religious people. Uh, the parable of the great banquet. In the great banquet, the, the man, the king, holds a banquet, and not everybody who's invited comes, so there's a lot of empty seats. So he uh, has his people go out and, and find everybody that they can, right? The, the poor and the homeless and the sick and the blind and the disabled, and they bring them all into this banquet. I thought about that. Uh, a few years ago, we had a, a wedding reception for one of our children that was married. Um, and I was thinking, what if everybody that we had invited hadn't shown up? Would we, we have really gone to the group home and said, hey, come on over? You know, to the homeless center, to the, to the rescue mission. Hey, you guys, I don't care what you're dressed like. I don't care if you haven't had a shower in a couple of weeks. Just come on over. We've got plenty of food. I can't imagine that. And yet that's what this parable says. God wants everybody, not only the people who were initially invited, but everybody to come in. Uh, or in Luke 15, the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Uh, you think about that. If I were a shepherd and I said, look it, I got 99% of these sheep are healthy and in the fold. And sheep are stupid and they're prone to injury and, and you know, wild animals killing them or some sort of death. I mean, 99% is a pretty good percentage, right? Uh, most of us would be very happy with the 99 at any test that we ever took. And yet, that shepherd goes after the one. And that's what God's like. The father of the prodigal son, later in Luke 15, he does things that no Middle Eastern father ever would have done. Uh, among them is running after his son, watching for him from afar, the son who's rejected him, and running after him and bringing him back into the family. Um, the owner of the vineyard, who pays everybody the same rate, even those who showed up at the very last minute. Uh, they get the same as those who worked all day. This theme of Jesus over and over again was God is different than what you think he is. God is different than the God that most of us think about because we're a lot like the Jews. We're very discriminating, frankly. We are very judgmental. Uh, we've been reading a book for elder development called, uh, uh, by Dane Ortland, a book about the lowliness of Jesus. And he says in the book that we're, you know, we're tit for tat. We're even things up. We're, we even have sayings like that. What goes around comes around. 
We talk about grace and we like grace for ourselves. But frankly, we're not that crazy about grace for all these other people. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this farmer who so radically throws out his seed. See, God's not willing that any should perish, but I'm not so sure about us. But on a second level, you know, we're the ones now charged with putting out the seed. And I wonder sometimes if we limit the people that we think should be deserving of God's grace and of the seed of his word. Carl F.H. Henry was a famous theologian. He was the editor of Christianity Today and a Christian thinker for many years. And he had this great quote that out of a discussion he had with other Christian leaders about the future of the church. He said this, who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis, a Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors for the faith. And to continue this theme, Here's a quote by Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is a theologian and a thinker. He's still alive and and very prolific. And this is what he said. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist. That's somebody who hates women. Profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. But the Spirit of God can turn that all around. Jesus will be king, and his church will flourish. And he'll do it in the way he chooses, by exalting the humble and humbling the exalted, and by transforming cowards and thieves and murderers into the cornerstones of his new city. So be kind to that atheist in front of you on the highway, the one who just shot you an obscene gesture. He might be the one who evangelizes your grandchildren. So I was thinking about that. As we here in Fredonia have the obligation to plant seed and to scatter seed, what soil do we assume is too hard? Who are the the hard cases that we ignore? And I thought of several of these, and since you don't pay my salary, I can say these, and if I offend you, Oh, well, you can't fire me. (laughs) How about this one? The violent, the gang members, the drug dealers, the the neo-Nazis, the terrorists, the Taliban. We just heard that Mrs. Straub still does a prison ministry. I mean, I'm all in favor of prison ministries, but I don't do it. Um, Think of some of those people. They're tough. They're hard. They're nasty. They're mean. They're violent. Do we think they're too hard? Their soil is too hard for the word of God. How about this one? I'll really offend some people with this one, perhaps. How about the LBGTQ community? You know, we we tend to, as Christians, we say, well, we disapprove of those lifestyles. Really? So we disapprove of those people. Now, to quote Mike Wells, don't hear what I am not saying. I am not saying that there's no such thing as sin or sinful lifestyles in this world. But what I am saying that we're sinners too. And the word of God came to us. And the word of God needs to come to people who are hurting and poor and tired and discouraged 
and we will find those kind of people in that community. What about the elite? You know, the academic elite. All those professors down at Fredonia State. Uh, we're fortunate we have a couple in our congregation. But, you know, let's face it. That's a place where the gospel hasn't penetrated very much. Do we just assume that those people are, think they're smarter than we are and so they don't have personal problems? I can guarantee you they have lots of personal problems. I can guarantee you they, too, need grace and they, too, need the Savior. What about the financial elite? You know, we're in this county that's, that's uh, full of vacationers and uh, people that have... I, I represent people on Chautauqua Lake that have more, much more into their vacation home than I have, would ever have in my own home. They have two or three million dollar vacation homes. And, you know, there's something in me that's like, you know, those people, they're rich, they're snotty. Uh, sometimes they come into the post office and give the postmaster a hard time. I know that from personal, uh, personal contact with him. Uh, you know, let's face it. They're people that need Jesus. Are they hard soil that we ignore? What about our political opponents? You know, everybody knows that the people who don't believe in the same politics as we, as we believe in are absolutely wrong and outside of God's grace. Huh. Maybe Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus hung around with the, with the traitors, with the tax collectors. So this is, I think, why the disciples didn't understand the parable. They thought, God can't be like that. He's not going to be giving seed to all these people, all these people that don't know him, that, don't, that reject him, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these people that are outside his plan. And Jesus was trying to tell them that, no, God really does care about the whole world. He cares about everyone. So then we look at the soil. I'll be brief about this. I mean, that first level, those people who refuse to listen at all, I assume that most of us aren't in that category or we wouldn't be here. We all know about people, and we've seen people like this. It doesn't matter. You can talk to them all you want. You can talk to them about you're blue in the face about the gospel. They just don't seem to want it. They don't seem to want to understand it or accept it. And Jesus is describing their response. How about the people who get excited? They go to a rally or a concert or a convention, and they decide they're going to be followers of Jesus, and in a few weeks it all kind of wears off. Uh, I'm sure we've known people like that. Uh, that's not that uncommon. In fact, Mark Twain describes it in Tom Sawyer. It's, it's actually pretty funny, uh, his description of, of the big revival that happens in Tom's hometown and how people all get saved for a day or two and then go back to normal. But maybe the third and the fourth categories are the categories we should think about. The people that get choked out by weeds and thorns. Jesus even identifies what they are. He says they're the worries of life, uh, there's riches, and there's pleasures. Um, now, we all know that the worries of this life can overwhelm us and, and dis distract us and keep us away from following God. Uh, certainly, the riches of this world have been a snare to many of us. The stuff that we own, the stuff that we want to own, uh, taking care of our stuff that we own. Um, and then, of course, the pleasures of this world. And those aren't always just, just the ones we think about, like food and alcohol and drugs, but there are other kinds of pleasures. We have more pleasures at the tips of our fingers than any generation has ever had. You know, we have video games and social media and 
distractions galore, you know, YouTube cat videos, you name it. Uh, it's all there. And it's all something that can keep us from following Jesus. Um, so what do we do to keep these weeds out of our lives? Again, going back to the garden analogy, there's one thing I learned early on about gardens. They require constant care and attention. And if you don't take care of them, they grow up in weeds. Uh, our father, not my heavenly father, but my physical earthly father, uh, was aware of that, and we often would have assignments about weeding and cultivating and hoeing and doing all these things that teenage boys frankly don't want to do. Um, and we did it because we were told we had to. But if we didn't do it, what was going to happen in those gardens, all those seeds that we planted? What was going to happen to all those plants in the garden? They didn't get overwhelmed. Uh, we have a big flower and planting garden around our house. Uh, and Sharon works hours and hours taking care of it and uh, weeding it and you know, doing all this stuff to it. So if we're going to be fruitful in God's kingdom, it's going to take, frankly, some discipline and some work. Um, if we want to be good soil producing fruit, we're going to have to exercise frankly, spiritual disciplines. What are those? I think most of us know what they are. They're Bible reading, their prayer, their fellowship with other Christians, their worship. Uh, there's things like meditation and fasting. All of those things can help us focus on God and become the kind of people that we need to be. Now, notice that when, at the very end of the parable, Jesus says that this comes with this word he uses, which most of us don't like, by persevering, they produce a crop. Perseverance means to keep going. Keep on going when you don't feel like it. Keep on going when you don't really want to. Keep on going through all the hard times and the good times and keep on doing the things to make yourself into good soil. And finally, what is fruit? Fruit is really more seeds. Uh, so when, if we're producing fruit, we're going to produce lots of seeds to continue to grow the kingdom. So two things that I think that we have to remember. First of all, God is interested in the entire world. That's why he lets the seed go on all the soil that's not necessarily soil that we would think would be productive. And secondly, that if we're going to be fruitful soil, we need to persevere. We can't take short shortcuts, but we need to continue to follow God, and then God can produce a fruit in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you want us to do. Lord, help us to take it to heart. Help us to do the things that we should do so that we, too, can be good soil, fruitful soil, producing a crop that you, will, that you can use for, to, to continue the growth of your kingdom. Be with us as now as we close our, our service and worship in Jesus' name. Uh, and finally, a benediction that I will read because Josh has started this tradition. I think it's great. From Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, including growing seeds on hard ground, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.